Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Episode 27 of Coaching Inside the Box has returned and returned with some enthusiasm and excitement. Why? Not because Andy just got back from Ashington, England. Not because Andy just got back from a jaunt across all of of his youth in Wales and England, but because I just looked at our ratings and reviews on uh, the Apple Podcast app. We've got a 4.9 out of 5. What do you guys think? It's good. Very good. You're wondering what brought us down from, from a five out of five, right? It was probably you. It was, because the only review that we have that is a one star was the review I gave it on accident. <laughs> Not surprised. Everything else is five out of five stars. We've got one one-starred review, and it was my burner account that I created, Lampshade4433. It's a great... I said nice things about our podcast. I just gave us a one out of five star. But what does that, what does that tell us about our audience? You know, it tells us how stupid they are that <laughs> 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 so they believe this crap. What it what it tells us about our audience is that the, we appreciate that their willingness to continue to indulge us on this project that seems to be growing every episode, um, uh, and that's kind of fun. But thank you guys. From this point onwards, if I meet somebody that says I listen to your podcast, I'm going to say, "How stupid are you?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you if you're listening to this podcast and you've yet to rate us, give us a rating. Help us help us recover from that one star rating that that jerk gave him named Andrew. I think we're never going to be five because of that. Ever, ever. You know, I I like to keep it real. Yeah, uh, keep us where we belong. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, actually, you know, four point nine might, in a warped way, be better than five <laughs> because nobody believes anything is perfect, right? That's fair you know, point. It's like when you're a kid in the discotheque and you look across the room and there's this absolutely perfect girl, you know, and you think, oh, I'd, I'd love to date her, but you don't because she's a five. So you you, you go for the <laughs> so four point nine. <laughs> I I went for the six, man. Uh, you the, went for the six. That's the best thing is even despite Andy's age, he knows all about current online dating uh, approaches. I said disco. Oh, forgive me, forgive me. Disco's coming back. Disco is coming back. Um, with that said, let's kick off this podcast, this episode. We're going to dig into some street soccer. We're going to dig into kind of all of the um, uh, fun topics that we have with unique spins. But before we go there, Andy, tell me about the discos and the nights out you had while you were back home in England for a few weeks. The discos? I didn't go to any discos. You didn't do any discos this time? I thought you were reliving your youth. The discos don't exist anymore, do they? I thought they were coming back. Maybe I don't know what a disco is. Did you pick up any fights in the pubs since you're reliving your youth? Look at this decrepit excuse for a body. Hey, you said it, not me. Fights? I mean, the, the, the only fight I have is, you know, with my lack of eyesight and trying to shave these days. <laughs> it probably would be a fight with the hair clippers, too, but you don't give yourself a haircut. You let other people do that. You know, one of the things, though, and I have to bring this up, is one of the things that really smacked me in the face when I was in Ashington is... Like a, is, with a cold kipper? Is that uh, how it goes? Slap me in the face with a cold kipper. Yep. Yeah, that's when you're really surprised. But you know, uh, you know, I, I was in Ashington, and and uh, you know, it, England was a blue collar. You know, uh, soccer in England was a blue collar sport, right? 
and it you know it just struck me how how you two are anything but blue collar you know I, I got to evaluate in you know my teammates on this podcast you guys you know and you know I realized that you know I do this podcast with a couple of silver spooners that's right you know, you know because I go to Ashington, finest you know I go to you know a, a a down and dirty blue collar mining community and it was dirty because it was a mining community you know and you know, I realized just how poor these people were and you know just how subsistence their living was and you know and I compare that to what I know about you and I was chatting to Philippe this morning, you know, for this purpose. And you know, I said to Philippe, you know, where did you grow up? And it turns out he grew up in what we in Britain call a detached house. And all my friends these days in Britain have gotten to the point where they own detached houses. And but you know, in Ashington, everything was terraced, which means it was attached on both sides to another terraced house that was attached on both sides to another terraced house. And these terraced houses were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of yards long in a street, hundreds of yards long. And so these, these people were really, really blue collar. They could hear what was happening on both sides of their family through the walls, you know, and, you know, that was the nature of the community. And then in Britain, there's the next stage up, which is semi-detached. And this is where you can only hear on one side what's happening with the family next door, you know, because you only share one wall. Like we'd call that a duplex. A duplex, exactly. Okay. You know, and, and then, of course, you get the detached. But nowadays in Ashington, the detached houses and even the semi-detached are further away from where the mines were. So they're on the outskirts of town. So, you know, you really have to have a car to drive into town to do your shopping at, you know, at the big Asda supermarket that now exists in, in the middle of Ashington. And, uh, and so it got me to comparing, you know, the, the old days of Bobby and Jackie Charlton in a terraced house and, you know, a tiny little place where, you know, they, they slept four to a bedroom, you know, and three to a bed and one on the floor you know, with, you know, the way in which, you know, both of you have been brought up. And, and I realized that, you know, unlike me, because I was brought up in a working class area of the world, you guys are silver spooners. I realized that you're privileged, you're spoiled, you're, you're brought up in detached houses. Even <laughs> Philippe. I think single family home is how we call it. Single uh, family home. It's, yeah. it's luxury living, you know, luxury it's living. elite living in those societies. You well, know. But if you think about the silver spoon, Brazil is a little rusty compared to <laughs> rusty. the English uh, work class Silver community. doesn't rust. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, you know, I can just see a, a, a social media post we make. Picture of Philippe, uh, r- rusty spoon uh, <laughs> living, Philippe Abreu. <laughs> but the fact that you guys lived in detached houses made you super frivol- privileged. You know, that's just... You know, a fact in, in, in the world as I knew it growing up, you know, I literally did not have any friends that lived in detached houses. So let's, un- let's, let's pull back the, uh, the, the, uh, the peel on this onion, right? So you made a trip back to England. We, I think we, we, we uh, foreshadowed it on our last episode. So you went back to England. You were back for two and a half, three weeks for a bit. You did a bunch of good stuff, but you carved out Two specific events that I'm eager to hear more about, right? Uh, event one is you, is you went and watched a Leeds game, um, even uh, got on the field and had a picture with, hopefully not, soon to be sacked, Jesse Marsh. Um, and then you also ran up to Ashington, I assume on your own. For those of you listening to this episode, after you get done li- listening to this episode, go back and listen to episode two. We refer to Ashington, England often. We think it is a fantastic story. Um, we also find it kind of funny that we seem to be the only people telling the story about how um, uh, th- uh, a hotbed of English football 
uh, stopped being such. Ashington, England, um, once cars started parking on the street and street soccer could no longer be played. But for that reason, you took a few day jaunt up to Ashington. I'm really eager to peel back the kind of the stories on both of those. But initially, what what were some like broad brushstroke perspective that you had going back to England? of which you've been several times, but this time on your own with kind of the freedom and the ability to just kind of, you know, do what you want and see what you want instead of entertaining 150 of your closest American soccer friends on soccer tour. Well, you know, let me describe my arrival in Ashington. You know, I get there in in the early evening, you know, and I check into my Airbnb and I purposely got an Airbnb in the working class areas, you know, right in the middle of where Bobby and Jackie Charlton grew up. Mm -hmm. You know, so I check into this, you know, tiny little Airbnb you know, and uh, you know, and and you know, everything's fine and dandy. So, you know, I go to the local pub and I say, "Where will I find some old timers? You know, that can tell me about soccer the way it was when Bobby and Jackie Charlton were growing up." And they said, "You know, aside from the old people's home, there's a game going on right <laughs> <People's> now." <home>. <laughs> <laughs> well, the memory unit unit <laughs> that was honestly what was said to me you know is you have to go down to the retirement community okay. you know because most of these people don't live on their own anymore you know and so you know i, I saw you know very quickly into my near future <laughs> <laughs> so eddie checked out some some potentials <laughs> So, so uh, they she said, said a game was going on. Yeah, and this game was the third round proper, uh, not uh, the third uh, qualifying round of the FA Cup. A huge game in Ashington because they don't play it in in what was the football league level anymore. It's amateur, right? It's entirely amateur. No, no, they it's get semi-pro. paid really well. Oh, do they really? Oh, these semi-pro players get paid. Okay, you know. You know they could live on the money they get paid, you know, just to play semi-pro. So, you know, things have really changed. The game, even below the pro level, at the semi-pro level, is really well rewarded at the next level below the pro level. And so, so you know, I walk into the ground free of charge because right after halftime and, you know, and, and funnily enough, when I walked outside of the pub, you could see the floodlights and you could hear the cheering that was going on. I just hadn't even thought about it on my way to the pub. So there's a, there's several, many Americans listening to this episode, right? And the FA Cup has this FA Cup lore to it. Um, and paint a picture, like, what does this ground look like? Is it, um, how many people-ish are there? Um, it's Monday t- or a Tuesday, Wednesday night, I assume, or is it a weekend? What, it, what does this look like? Because I've never been to an FA Cup, FA Cup game. Well, it was a night game, so, you know, the kickoff 7.30, you know, and uh, th- there were actually 3,000 people in the ground. Okay. You know? And so, you know, you walk in and there's a pretty large main stand, you know, with, with a bar at the back of it. There's always a bar real close in England. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, stands, you know, around the ground where people can stand, you know, and be covered from the rain, you know, but there's smaller stands around the rest of the ground, you know, that, that don't, you know, don't go to any, you know, any height. But, you know, it's a nice little area. But, you know, Ashington was moved from its original ground, which was, you know, down by the, the collieries, down by the, the mines, the pits. Uh, it was bought out by big business. Asda wanted to put in a supermarket, a super, super, super duper market you know, close to downtown. And so, you know, there's this really large, lovely, um, you know, more like a Costco type, but even bigger than Costco here in Kansas City, supermarket, you know, in Ashington these days, you know, that pretty much dominates, you know, the, the food sales and, and, you know, all of the, you know, the, the grocery sales and ancillary sales, you know, in the community from what I understand, you know, but I walk in and, 
you know, there's there's a bunch of people that are, you know have got this mini band and they're banging drums and singing songs and starting chants and leading chants and all the fans know the chants, you know. So there's a, this whole wild a- atmosphere, and I go and stand with this group, you know, the only four people that are all leading the chants and they're dressed up in black and white, you know, and they're obviously, you know, the, the local enthusiasts. You know, some might see the, even say the, the local crazies because they're so in love with Ashington and the sport, you know, and... You and know, you I, fit right in because you were in a black shirt, undoubtedly, yeah. um, and you're also kind of crazy, so four became five. Yeah, well, you know, just for a change, I was wearing black, yeah, you know, and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I actually, you know, uh, struck up a conversation with uh, Connor Smith, Great guy, you know, just total pleasure to to get to know. Although I got to be honest, you know, I had a real tough time with his deep Northumberland accent. You know, <laughs> I had to do about three takes in order to figure out what he was saying to me. <laughs> you know, and, and and seriously, you know, it is a different world. It's a different language up there. You know, and and so uh, you know, but you know, you know, I got to you know know Connor fairly well. So he even called me the next night and invited me to the trivia night at the local pub, and we you know we ended up speaking for hours again about you know soccer and its roots and you know and you know i picked his brains about you know what what had been happening you know in the decades since the charlton's lived in the community but it is it is deeply deeply embedded in the community and even though it's 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 now only semi-professional in ashington they love their soccer it's the number one sport still by far they're incredibly proud of their wonderful heritage and all the the great players that grew up in the community you know, and, you know, they bleed black and white, you know, which is the colors of, of the home team in Ashington. And and when you arrived and you and Connor, at whatever, whatever point he was like, what are you doing here? And you were like, well, I'm actually here to see for myself how Ashington went to, you know, the, 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 the king of the English footballing hotbeds um, from a youth development perspective <laughs> to the pauper of English footballing youth development hotbeds. Did he, I mean, jaw hit the floor. Was he gobsmacked? He was like, wait. Tell me again why you're here. Yeah, he, you know, he, he, I don't think he'd ever encountered somebody like me that was researching the community. And one of the things that, that was telling is I sent him some of the stuff I'd written about Ashington, you know, after, you know, I got back to the States. And, you know, he sent me a reply that said, you know, I was actually really pleasantly surprised because your, you know, depiction of Ashington wasn't one of criticism of you know, you know, the, the poverty, you know, and, you know, the, the circumstances that these guys grew up in, he said it, you know, it was almost a, uh, you know, a heroic depiction, you know, if you like, and these are my words, not his, because I can't remember word for word what he said, you know, but, you know, the, the general feeling was um, the appreciation for something that recognized how hard it was in the community, but, you know, actually put a, a, a positive twist or spin on what came out of, you know, that working class, down and dirty, down the mines, um, you know, atmosphere, you know, that the character that people had to have to go to a living death every day, you know, and, you know, and get up again and go in the next day and the next day, you know, and, you know, the toughness, you know, that, that was built in the community, but also the camaraderie, the friendship, you know, these people were, would, would have had much deeper and, and more solid friendships than people in today's suburbia, you know, with their neighbors, because they were all in it together. 
And it wasn't a pleasant existence. I mean, physically, the houses were attached on both sides, as we talked about on the front end. And that and that plays into all of that from community building, from environment uh, creation, um, perhaps as a decent segue into a little bit of what we kind of want to dig into and unpeel. But you made a statement in some of the writing that you did to prepare for the show, but it was a, recogni- a recognition that the coaches worldwide today that are coaching our youth did not grow up most likely in an environment playing a lot of you know creative un, uh, uninhibited um, street soccer it's it's gone you know I didn't play any street soccer you know I grew up in a wonderful environment I thought for soccer development but now I realize that the environment I grew up in wasn't anywhere near as perfect and I'm not talking perfect in terms of cookie cut pretty you know um, you know I'm not talking social media perfect where you know people that live dire lives can even pretend that they live lovely lives you know uh, you know where we grew up was was in some ways down and dirty in some ways it was quite ugly Um, but you know we didn't have the organic advantages for soccer development than Ashington did Ashington outstripped what we had as kids by far and I literally could you know walk through the 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 hole my dad cut in the council fence at the end of the garden onto the council recreation ground that was immediately on the other side of the fence so my friends would would come round and walk from the working uh, the working class estate at the back of us because you know my mum and dad bought a house in the private estate you know that that bordered the working class estate you know and everything was blue collar where we lived you know there weren't many or if any white collar people in our street you know but some people actually bought their own houses and other people lived on the council estate where you know they didn't own their own houses and you know so the two butted up to each other on different sides of the recreation ground and you know player, uh, players or friends that I played with would walk across the wreck walk through the, the hole my dad cut in the council fence you know and bang on the back door or just walk into our kitchen and say you know can Andrew come out to play and we'd go and play soccer you know and my mum and dad loved it that you know they could walk down the garden and see me playing soccer so you know I was four I was five I was six seven eight nine ten and I was always within sight of my mum and dad playing soccer on the wreck and they really enjoyed that because it took the worry out of me you know playing soccer and without that hole I'd have had to walk a mile round to the official entrance to the park to get into the park to play and so my participation in playing soccer would have been minimal compared to what I actually enjoyed mm-hmm. just because I could walk through the hole at the end of the garden fence. Funnily enough, I was there with my daughter for two days this time and we went and visited my old house. And for the first time ever, because she's an actress and you know she makes her living out of you know, being out there on, on the wild and crazy ragged edge, um, she said, Dad, don't be shy. And she w- just walked up to the front door. It's that American accent. <laughs> in, in, in England, that, that goes a long way. Yeah, and she, she knocked on the door of 113 Dean, Dean Road, which is where I spent most of my developmental years. I was born in the house across the street. We moved into 113. And when I was in my late teens, we moved into 115. You know, that was the adventure of my, you know, the, the extent of my housing adventures as a kid, you know, was from three houses that were literally not even a stone's throw from each other. You know, but she knocked on the door and this this you know, really friendly guy opens the door. And, you know, I'm 64. Guess how old he was? 64. 
you know, and so there's all these coincidences. I was going to guess 63. His wife's name is Tracy. My wife's name is Tracy. You know, I mean, the coincidence. That's becoming kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> it, but there was like, a, like, like 20, 30, 40 of these coincidences while we were talking. You know, that's what made it even weirder. You lived in that house and now he lives in that house. And now he and his wife Tracy lives in that house, you know. And so, and, and so you know, we, we got to, you know, talking and reliving everything, you know, that, that uh, I had lived you know, and comparing everything that, that, um, that he knew and I knew. And um, the, his wife said, so it was your dad that cut the hole in the fence that later resulted in all our houses getting burgled down the street. <laughs> you know, and I said, they got burgled? She said, yeah, people were getting through. Is burgled an actual word? <laughs> in English it is. But Rob, yeah, don't, Rob. Don't look not, at Rob. me. You're, you're not English, so you wouldn't know. Um, but... Uh, um, you speak American, by the way. American. You invented it. We perfected yeah. it. Easy does it. It's just like <laughs> soccer. England invented it. Brazil perfected it. <laughs> they are good at inventing. I think I've They're heard Philippe say that a hundred times yeah. in our relationship. You know, you Americans are verbally challenged. That's just the truth <laughs> of the matter here. You know, and as far as you Brazilians go, I mean. You know, you just don't understand how to speak God's chosen language. And I don't care that you speak three languages, okay? <laughs> I don't care. Don't rub them. No, you know, I'm but, a one language, language guy. But you know, your, you know your dad would get a chuckle realizing that the holes that he cut in the fence to give kids greater access to the wreck, right? You, but your, your neighbors, the kids you'd play with, um, was responsible for a, a string of, of, of thefts that existed <laughs> on Dean Road many decades later. Well, he came from a place called Bethnal Green that was nicknamed Fiddler's Green because everybody had to steal to live. You know, it was one of those places where you had to fiddle in order to get by, you know, back in those those decades. Um, but, but uh, you know, the, the lady was, you know, she was laughing as she was saying it was your dad that was responsible. But, you know, so so she pointed out they have a security fence now at the back of the recreation ground and all the houses are protected by this security fence, you know, and, you know, you'd, you'd literally need an arsenal of, of bombs to take down this security fence, you know, to break into the houses, you know, so my dad would not be able to cut a hole in that fence. And the opportunity is gone that I enjoyed as a kid, you know. And so this is how, you know, um, we call it progress, right? This is how progress has impacted our lives. You know, is it's taken away the special areas that defined the skills and the abilities and the altitude to which kids could aspire to, you know, because they just, just don't have that anymore. Well, I mean, you've literally just painted a picture as for the, 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 the mission behind this podcast. Uh, the mission behind our coaching philosophy and coaching approach and club is that, that as a society, we've made progress, right? But kids no longer have access to super creative play. Um, here in the United States, we've really never had access to street soccer, but we recognize that that creative piece of street soccer that doesn't exist in the world, anything like it did five, six decades ago, um, is, uh, is, is necessary and needed for growth. And, and it's the reason why we've developed our, our training facilities the way that we have uh, to try to create a, um, a, a, a modern version of the benefits that exist from street soccer. And Philippe, We've talked about it before, but it's always worth mentioning it again. The first time you came and participated in our club's activities, 
I mean, you were just, our club was the same as any other club to you until you walked in. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, the first, I, first time I came here was to ref a 4v4 game. And I, I got there and my friends had told me, oh, it's easy money, you know, you go there, it's a small field, you just stand there and call fouls whenever the coach is yelling a lot otherwise <laughs> leave. let the game let the game play you must uh, have called a lot of fouls then <laughs> <laughs> you just lean up against the wall when the coach yells foul you blow your whistle exactly that's what i was told <laughs> and point 50 50 percent chance you're pointing exactly. in the right direction poor kids exactly. never got the play exactly how many Everything times was a foul how many times i was a goal scorer and i didn't even i my head was like completely gone somewhere else and i had not even realized it was a goal and then everybody's like oh <laughs> anyway but it was I, I it was it was fun because i i walked in and i'm like okay american kids playing soccer that's gonna be a hassle it's gonna be boring and then i see these kids the coaches yelling skill which i didn't even and i had never w heard that word in soccer before because um, i came here to play college the college coaches don't yell skill right so um <laughs> I, I saw everybody yelling skill, 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 and then the, these kids doing Maradona turns, doing double scissors, and like just doing some funky stuff, and a lot of times not being, you know, just you know, a pass would be an easier way to go to the goal, but they would take three defenders on and try something, and even when they lost the ball, the coaches would be like, oh, well done, good try, next one, next one. And I start like looking at it like that's that's pretty cool. And then I I start you know meeting some some of the coaches. Uh, Iverson and Kyle were the first ones, and they kind of explained me how the philosophy was and all that. And I started getting fascinated for it, and I started then coaching in the 44 program and all that. I'm I'm, I'm going to interrupt you here. Surprise! Guess because. You know, I, I want to lead you into this. So, I'm gonna, so you're going to pick this up again in a minute. But this was part of my plan to lead you into this, you know, in a way that is really valuable to our audience. So Andy's, bear with me. And he's trying to prepare if, if I depart this earth, that he can take <laughs> over as show host. The sooner the better. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's got to be me first, isn't it? So I better shut my mouth. Um, so... Uh, Listen carefully to this. The epic era of street soccer in Ashington was between the end of the First World War and 1960. Tiny hotbeds may have lasted longer in poorer areas of other towns that were protected from the onslaught of passenger cars. But as blue-collar wealth accelerated and cars took over the roads where kids' games had ruled for decades, Ashington's street football which for two golden generations had produced many magical top-level players, gradually disappeared. This phenomenon was repeated in working-class communities of most European countries, and where economic prosperity flourished, street soccer disappeared more rapidly. The erosion of street football was unquestionably linked to growth in community affluence, money, and specifically by the acquisition of family cars, which now parked where kids had previously played soccer. The erosion of street soccer, and this is where you come in, funnily enough, happened everywhere except in the favelas of Brazil's bigger cities, where it continued to be a powerful influence 
on talent development. Streets provided kids with an unlimited and ridiculously convenient place to play soccer. The loss of street soccer hurt player development the world over, which begs the question, why not so much in the Brazilian favelas? Go. Well, I think it's self-explanatory. No cars, you're in the middle of the mountain, you know, there's there's no n- no pathway for a car. Mm, you know, you drive around in the little bit in the bottom, but as you go up, the the streets are ti- uh, narrow, 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 house on top of house. You know, everybody living on top of each other and there there's just no cars. They have uh bikes and they they it's like called bike cabs uh, you know you pay a dollar or whatever and the guy takes you all the way to the top and uh, that's how some people get to you know if they're fortunate uh, go all the way up but other than that they just walk like people that live in the top of a favela they work right in the bottom like five minutes from the bottom walking but they take like an hour to walk up and down uh, b- but anyway, there are no cars, narrow streets, any bit of space. There's like a soccer little court, little field or space that kids are playing soccer all the time. So if you look at it uh, in the, you said 60s is when the cars are coming, right? And and Well, they started coming before that, but, you know, everything really accelerated. So you look at, so you look at the 60s and the 70s and then you look at Brazil, early 90s, late uh late 90s and early 2000s those are kids born in the 70s and, and they still 80s. had street soccer correct so right. you see that that span of 10 years that brazil absolutely killed everybody it was maybe so ronaldo the first Lima yeah and ronaldinho yeah so it's, it's the first romario and you know rivaldo and all roberto carlos so all of that might have been the first impact of one society not being impacted by cars and other societies being impacted by cars because they kept playing street soccer where the rest of the world weren't playing street soccer. But so England would be better than Brazil if we'd kept playing street soccer. Well, England <laughs> England was never better than Brazil. So. <laughs> but, okay, but, but, this, but this is an interesting... So I'm listening to a, a podcast uh, by the Men and Blazers right now leading up to the World Cup in Qatar, and it's called World Corrupt, and they're talking about basically how Qatar corruptly nabbed the World Cup. And... In the late 90s, early 2000s, which is when Brazil was undoubtedly the best team in the world by mm-hmm. a significant margin from my perspective. Three World Cup finals in a row. Yeah, yeah. And, Unheard and, of. And, 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 and what happened then is when FIFA started funneling a ton of money into it, and right? And so as a result, it became a very globalized game. And Brazilian players, it that's in the... And once you got into the 2000s, it started flipping, right? And that... Brazilian players going to Europe mm-hmm. created a, a, a better path for them to make a whole lot more money than yeah. they were a decade, a decade and a half before. But it also created this globalization and t- television eyes on the sport as a whole, which took back to Brazil what you keep saying, which is a more structured European approach to the yeah. game, which has since been the not the death of, and but a, a stunt to Brazil's continued dominance. <laughs> off the back of and street it, soccer. If you hear if you hear all these players from the nineties and early two thousands, they often say that, you know, for them to get to the national team, they would have to prove it so much and in Brazil, in the league, and the league was really good. 
they would already be in the national team and they would still be catching a bus to go to practice. They weren't making as nearly as much money yet. At 22, 23, after they proved so much in the local league, they would go to Europe. Then they would make a ton of money. Then they would. So then when all that globalization happened, now the kids are 16 are signing pro contracts with European clubs and making fortunes and they haven't accomplished anything. And that ruined a span of 10, 15 years of Brazilian soccer because the players went crazy because they achieved financial success really early, really fast without proving anything. You know, the distractions came along and all that. And I think now Brazil is getting back on track, you know, and the players seem more professional and they want to play, you know, and I, f I feel. But that's a, a whole different story. But again, back to what we were saying. Yeah, Brazil was... And I think a lot of that is cultural as well because, you know, I didn't live in a favela and I played soccer all day long. I would find a place to play with my friends. Hold on a I second, hold on a second. We, we've had this discussion. You didn't live in a favela, but you Rusty said spoon. a favela was one minute away, and that's a quote. Yeah. You know, so so you lived in a detached house. You yes. know, you, you know, your dad was a businessman, you know, and, you know, as it happens in business, it ebbed and it flowed, but, you know, you had the ability to live apart from the favelas. Correct. But you were so close because everybody, as you said, so the culture, is so close to the a favela. Culture, the culture is the same. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you went a minute down the road and you were in a street game, right? Yeah, correct. Right. Correct. Right. So that's the thing. And even not being in a favela, playing the street games in the favela, you go to the, you know, to... I mean, there's so many apartment complexes, buildings and stuff, and all of them have a futsal court. You go in, you play. You just walk in and you play with your friends. But you don't play futsal ball. You play with a regular ball. We but don't, yeah. But we don't, a, yeah. But we're playing the size we, of a futsal court. Well, it's just futsal because it's concrete, but it's right. it's always fenced in and, you know. It's not futsal. It's, it's soccer with, with correct. boards or fences, correct. you know. So calling Very it futsal is a misrepresentation because that implies you use yeah, a futsal ball. Yeah, that's, that, that's fair. Uh, but yeah, very similar to what we do here because it's always fenced in and gated and like the ball doesn't escape and you're just playing, 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 playing. And we would go to school, we would arrive at school 30 minutes early and we would find a wall and get a Coca-Cola can and throw it and we would play one-on-one, two-v-two with a Coca-Cola can going against the wall, the wall being the goal. And we would, you know, leave when we didn't find a Coca-Cola can, we'd get our socks and make a ball with our socks and play. And it's just the cultural side, you know? It's, it's even when we were, yes, correct, it, we couldn't play much on the street because of the cars, on the street street, uh, but you would find somewhere else that was a little safer uh, where you were, and there's so many, you know, courts for you to play. I mean, and it's just it's a concrete jungle, right? It's a concrete jungle. It's a concrete jungle, and and I think that's the point that 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 we've mentioned a few times in passing. But that's the point that I think is often missed by American soccer coaches looking at it is that when you grow grow up in urban centers like you know Rio or or Paris or Marseille or wherever it might be, you don't ha you have access to only concrete jungle playgrounds which require which create an environment full of full of rebounding full of fast pace and that culture and that environment develops players at a level that 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 
you know, recreational green spaces don't. Full and stop. You look at basketball. Where do the great basketball players come from? They live in, in the hood in America and they go to those uh, basketball courts and they play. They so, play so street basketball. So it's we, the we're going we're, we're to get into in a minute. The um, all the things that Ashington had that other communities didn't have, right? But I want to get into something that a lot of people <laughs> I think have really missed, you know. And you know, I'm, I'm going to read this because uh, you know it, it, it's something I'm prepared, and it, I'm better when I read it. In World War II, thousands of pilots and their planes were destroyed in fiery crashes, for the same reason that police wear bulletproof vests and not leggings. Extra, extra reinforcement was eventually provided to the engine housing. But when the evidence from planes returning from combat was first examined, logic seemed to favor reinforcing the fuselage, not the engine. So they eventually reinforced the engines, but they actually reinforced the fuselage. Right? And, and this is the case of the missing bullet holes. Why did they reinforce the fuselage before they switched and reinforced the engine housing? Because when the planes got back to the airfield that they'd taken off from, uh, the, most of the holes on the returning planes were in the fuselage. So they figured that they needed to reinforce the area where most of the holes on the returning planes were. How are we so dumb? <laughs> you know, but sometimes the, the, the answer's obvious. Yeah. It's right in front of our nose, and right? we still can't get it. And I mean, these are really intelligent people that came up with the solution. And, and, until Abraham Wald said, you know, are we not looking at the problem the wrong way? You know, we should be looking at where the damage is for the planes that didn't return. So... <laughs> You know, they, they dredged up some of the planes that had been shot down, you know, in, in the, you know, in, in the channel, in the English Channel that were on their way back but hadn't made it. And where were the holes of the planes that didn't make it back? Invariably, the majority of the holes in the planes that didn't make it back were in the engine. Well, <laughs> duh. You know, but, but you know, so, you know, what but, I'm saying really is... really intelligent people didn't put that together for a period of time, which is just... And, and, I would, and I'm not intelligent, so who knows what I would have thought. So, I know where you have thought. <laughs> so, so you know, let's look at Ashington and Brazil. Yeah. You know, so you look at Ashington and you look at all the, you know, the great players that came out of Ashington. Where are the missing bullet holes? What type of player did Ashington not produce? Creative. Exactly. The missing bullet holes. This is such a great analogy for the favelas of Brazil where Philippe grew up playing the game versus, you know, Ashington. The Ashington, I think, from everything I've seen of the fields in the favelas of Brazil, Ashington was a better physical environment for developing skillful players because everything was cookie cut. You know, Philippe, you just said that you would go to a little, you know, area in the favelas you know and it was just what was available but it wasn't the same wherever you went so you made do and you played with you know coca-cola cans we improvised or, yeah you improvised right in ashington it just so happened that the without meaning to the planners of ashington built this row after row after row and i was just there and it's just amazing they built this this a second development and all the great players came from the second development incidentally and this is interesting because 
the really great players didn't come from the first Ashington development. There's two mines. There's two big mines in Ashington. One is the Ashington Colliery and one is the Woodhorn Colliery. And the houses that were built for the Ashington Colliery were built to a different design and did not produce great players. The houses that were built for the Woodhorn Colliery were these rows and rows of absolutely perfect soccer playing areas that they didn't mean as soccer playing areas. Just by coincidence, they built it a certain way. And so you've got half of the community that didn't produce great soccer players and the other half that did, which was built later and developed these two generations of great players that disappeared thereafter because of cars. You know, and it's just fascinating when, when I walk the layout, you can see exactly why. Because the area for, you know, the, that was built for the workers at the first colliery, you know, isn't really good for soccer. There's, there's windows that kids could break if they, they kicked a tennis ball. You know, the, you know, the, the outhouses were across the street. So people were traveling across the street to go to the toilet and didn't want soccer balls hitting their door as they were going to the toilet. You know, and so this whole area was a dud for developing great players. But the later area that was built 20, 30 years after that first area was absolutely perfect, purely by coincidence, for developing great soccer players. You know, so, you know, Brazil had something Ashington didn't, you know, which, you know, Ashington had the design that Brazil didn't have, but you had what that Ashington didn't have? Well, we had the culture. The culture. Go. No, it's just embraced in our culture and it's in our DNA of playing creative and you know it's how we approach music is how we approach art it's how we approach obviously the game of soccer um, even if you look at MMA fighting uh, which Brazil is a big 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 powerhouse and it's a lot because of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu which is uh, a creative art um, you know, it's a different way of doing jiu-jitsu and it's allowing the creativity and leveraging the body. Uh, and that's how uh, sometimes smaller guys would be able to beat uh, guys that were much bigger. So in every aspect of sports and society, we always lean to the more creative sides, to the most beautiful uh, side. And, you know, it's the same Brazil. It's not enough to win. You have to win beautifully. You have to win the Brazilian way. And that's why, like right now, everybody is finally, since, honestly, since 2006, I've never seen a, a Brazil a con- as a country as excited for a World Cup. And honestly, it doesn't really matter, I think, if we win at this point. But the fact that we're generating the excitement that we haven't since 2006 is just incredible. And I think even if we don't, unless we obviously completely play terrible and, you know, disappoint every, everybody, if we play good and we play the way that we've been playing, even if the, if the result doesn't come, which is soccer, it might happen, I think people are going to still love the national team once again and, and be happy because we're playing the Brazilian way, we're playing creative, we're playing skillful, you know, we have a lot of young talent taking risks. And, you know, I think the problem that we've had the last 10, 15 years was that we start thinking, oh, being creative is not enough, you know, being talented is not enough. True, 
it's it's not enough, you know, guys like Ronaldinho, Adriano, and, you know, at points in their career, they put soccer a little bit aside and start enjoying life in a different way, you know, and that hurt the national team a ton. But the answer wasn't on, you know, let's focus on the tactical, let's, you know, get more defensive mids and, you know, play more direct or whatever. No, the answer was just like, yeah, your good players need to be more professional, take care of themselves and be focused on the mission. You know, it's a short career. They have to make the most out of it. But let's keep playing creative. Let's keep taking people on and taking risks. And, and soccer is an entertainment. At the end of the day, it's an entertainment. I honestly, I watch some even in Premier League games and I'm not super entertained because it's it's too tactical sometimes play sideways and backwards you know you've got uh, Man City playing against a smaller team and you have 11 guys behind the ball park the bus and it's just not as fun you know so so let me let me um, read this because this is perfect for what you just segued into Maybe because Bobby Charlton was such a great and famous player, we failed to recognize he was missing something that both Pelé and Ronaldinho had in abundance. The missing attributes in Bobby Charlton's soccer upbringing were world-class creativity and improvisation. None of the Charltons, the Milburns, the Adamsons, you know, which are all Ashington's favorite sons, and other accomplished players from the Ashington community who played professionally were exceptional deceptive dribblers. Yet most had a knack for scoring goals, even when primarily tasked with defensive roles. Perhaps they lacked creativity because grandstanding and showing off was the antithesis of the Charlton or Melbourne family character. Perhaps it was because creativity played little part in the dour, stoic, mining mentality of the era. Perhaps it was because the consequence of showing off with a ball was prob probably a fierce kicking from the other kids in the street. Perhaps the dour nature of mining bred a dislike of anyone who thought they were all that in a bag of crisps. Anyone with a high opinion of himself was soon brought down to earth in the tough mining culture of the day. Scoring was enthusiastically approved of, no problem there. However, using fakes and moves to embarrass defenders was seriously frowned upon, especially by the victim who was determined to prevent a repeat by fair means or foul. When nutmegging an opponent in a street game might cost you your front teeth, doing so quickly loses its appeal. The Ashington and Charlton Milburn family environments and cultures were as close to perfect for soccer in just about every possible way except for deceptive dribbling and the type of creativity that might embarrass an opponent. Simply put, a nutmeg wasn't worth a black eye. Maybe this was Ashington's Achilles heel. And creative dribbling with moves suffered because of it. Many of that era's best players came from Ashington, but even the environment that was as close to perfect as any of its day was missing a crucial component of absolute greatness. It was missing the margin of greatness in creativity. Fair comment? Totally fair, right? Like, like I mean, s step one is to create an environment that 
um, increases the speed of play, increases the passion and the enjoyment for the game, right? And Ashington has that in spades, it seems to me. Um, step two is is actually having the margin of greatness, the ability to create when when it's not there, the ability to improvise. Um, and, 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 and that's the difference between Ashington as a, as a talent hotbed of which it was, um, comparative to, you know, the, the concrete jungle of Marseille, France, right. Which is, I think France in the last world cup had, had developed more players. It was north of 50, maybe even north of 60 players from, uh, had, had, spent their lives growing up in the concrete jungles of France that were playing for numerous national teams and probably will be the case again leading into this World Cup, I would assume. Um, so, yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, Andy, when you walked the streets of Ashington, like, could you feel it? Could you feel, like, the um, ah, the mystique or the aura as you walked up? Was it Laburnum Terrace, right, where the, uh, the, the Charlesons grew up? Uh, as you asked me that question, I got an absolute chill up my spine yeah. all the way up and down my back, you know, because, you know, and yeah, I, I, I accept that I'm really weird, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm a super <laughs> Ashington fan now, spoken. you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, I, I, I really have, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid on Ashington, you know, but, but this is Kool-Aid that nobody else, you know, has discovered yet, you know, or, or highlighted yet. You know, there's bits and pieces in, in, you know, in things that Bobby has wrote, the, you know, the Jimmy Adamson book that Bobby... Well, that's what put you onto it, right? Well, you know, well, it, it was 1958 and the Munich air disaster that got me thinking, you know, they're the only two brothers that ever won a World Cup together. Mm-hmm. You know, so was there something in the water? You know, and it started me looking into Ashington, you know, and it turns out that, you know, there's so many famous players that came out of Ashington. And I'm absolutely shocked that, you know, that nobody's put together this thread before. Yeah. You know, because Ashington should be famous. You know, there's a whole book about, you know, the Bill Shankly's, uh, you know, village in Scotland, you know, and, you know, the, the fame of the players from Bill Shankly's village is a mere fraction of the fame of the players from, from Ashington, England. Well, and I think a lot of people, to go back to the fuselage versus the, the engine in terms of reinforcements, I think a lot of people wrongheadedly look at, oh, the reason there's so many players that come out of the favelas in Brazil is because they're poor and they have no other way out. There's the reason so many NBA players come out of the hood in the United States is because they, they're poor and they have no other way out. The reason that Ashington developed players is because it was a blue-collar, working-class area, and that was the only way out from a, uh, a financial windfall perspective. But that's not the case because Ashington, it sounds like, is not a whole lot different from an economic perspective now compared to 70 years ago. And it, it, it was part of the reason. And if you, you know, look, and, and so it's part of the reason. Yeah, so but there's a bunch of places with, with, with economic uh, uh, you know, That's challenges. what I was going to say. If you look at Brazil, yes, the people in the favelas of Rio and Sao Paulo, they're poor. Yes. But, there's a bunch but of you look at the northeast of Brazil and the north of Brazil, these people are beyond poor, but they don't have the environment that these kids have they don't have the access to soccer and street soccer like that because they live on a, a dirt and on a on nearly desert or forest and do or they whatever. develop players at the same rate as the favelas they don't develop barely any players barely any players it's a, so, so so if you look at uh, you know the number of players that that come from rural environments you know there's no famous player that i've ever found that comes from a, a, vivi- a village you know in the middle of the countryside you know, you have to have 
Um, not just one thing or two things. You have to have a number of things. And this is a good time to get into actually why Ashington was so good for, for producing players. You know, and feel free to jump in with anything that, that, you know, that you see that we're missing. Ashington had streetlights. You know, it was a mining community. Mining shifts started all throughout the night. Was that unique in that era? Well, have streetlights? You know, it, it was rare to have all the way through a community streetlights, hmm. you know, where people lived. You know, the main streets might have had streetlights, but Ashington through the blue collar area had streetlights because the miners needed to walk in the middle of the night to their shift at the pit. And of course, it was free coal. You know, they owned the mines, so <laughs> they, of energy. all they had to do was put the lights in and then the costs were over because they had free coal. So, you know, the owners were crazy not to add lights to the streets, you know, to help their miners get to work. You know, so, you know, it was, it was you know, obvious why they had street lights. But the knock-on effect was the kids could play under lights until 10 at night. And when mom came, or, or ma'am, as they call them in, in Ashington, where ma'am came and said, you know, you know, time for bed. I mean, we're the north of England. In December, it's probably dark by 4.15, yeah. 4.30. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, these kids, you know, their mums, some mums might not call them into bed till 10 o'clock at night. They're glad they're out there. They don't want them in the house. Yeah. You know, it gets crazy in There's the house no where the kids are in. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so these are tiny houses. So, you know, it, it, it gave these kids a, a, a way to play until 10 at night. So this is a huge one, in fact. Kids that would normally have played for an hour after school got to play six hours after school. Broke for their dinner, for their tea, as we call it in, in England, you know, and then went back out and played again until mum called them in at night. In fact, there's a documentary, and you can look it up on YouTube, Jackie Milburn, and he talks about at Christmas, he was heartbroken you know, he managed to persuade his parents at three in the morning, three in the morning, to give him his present, which was a new pair of football boots, soccer shoes. And he went out straight away after lacing up his shoes, ran into the streets, and was absolutely heartbroken at 3 a.m. because the game was already so crowded he couldn't get in the game for 15 minutes. <laughs> and he talks about it in the documentary how he still remembers to this day you know, he's dead now. At the time he, he made the documentary. Well, he still, may still remember it. <laughs> you never know. You know, but, you know, he, he said he was heartbroken because he couldn't get in the game for 15 minutes. You know, so that goes to show the importance of the lights and how even at 3 a.m. they could get a game, you know, on the day after they got their presents for Christmas. You know, so, so street lights were huge. And, and there's, there's no one thing that, that made this happen. You know, it's it's a number of small, you know, pluses, advantages that, that may have nothing to do with soccer. So the other thing was walls. And, and when you go to Ashington, you know, and, and you can see this from photographs from the past, you know, and, and Sissy Chant talks about this in her book, how she would step out into the lane behind her house and she could look down the lane for 200 yards and all there was was high walls on both sides disappearing into the distance. As a little kid, it looked like, you know, the road to the end of the earth, you know, disappearing into the distance. With walls, uh, walls, of course, trap balls. So, you know, when you shoot and you shoot against the wall, it comes back to you. And you shoot again, it comes back to you, it shoots again. And we've done this in our facilities. And literally, you know, our kids can take over a thousand shots you know, during practice. Our club record is 1,474 shots in one practice. Well, they grew up with that in Ashington. The walls were what they played to. And the streets were only 22, 24, 26 feet across. 
you know, so you'd literally shoot against the wall, the ball would come back, you shoot against the wall again, you know, and it was one on one, two on two, three on three, four on four street games, and the ball never rolled away. You never had to chase a ball because the ball that rolled away had to go sideways, you know, and everybody was trying to bring it back to shoot on goal anyway. So, you know, it was always rebounders, keep playing, keep playing. You didn't stop after a goal was scored to go fetch a ball. So, you know, the rebound repetition was amazing. They never had soccer balls. I'm talking about the 18-panel pig's bladder sewn soccer balls. So they used tennis balls or hard rubber balls or sometimes, like Philippe said, tin cans or whatever. But there was usually a supply of tennis balls or little rubber balls because they were relatively inexpensive. And so they had those balls. Tiny spaces. You know, it, it, we train people with too much space, you know, in general in England and America when they're youth players. These kids had tiny spaces, little balls, tiny spaces, lots of bodies, and you have to get to be incredible when you're playing in tiny spaces with lots of bodies. You know, so, you know, the, the speed of thought, the speed of play, the physical contact, all these things that mm. come with tiny spaces that build greatness, they were there, you know, just naturally, organically in that environment. And then no need to travel. Literally, you open the big wooden door and you're in the lane and you're straight into the game. Yeah. You know, you look down the, the road and your game might be 50 yards this way because there's a game for the four and five-year-olds there and the six and seven-year-olds there and then an eight and nine-year-old. And, and if you're good enough, you go up a couple of age groups and you play with the 12 and 13-year-olds like Bobby Charlton did. It's documented. He went and played with the older kids because he was so good when he was a kid. And so there's, there's all of these games and no need to travel. So you go literally from your kitchen into a soccer game, you know, with, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet of backyard in between, you know, and so there's no time wasted, you know, ready supply of opponents and teammates. I mean, working class families, you know, in Ashington, it was like, it was like rabbits in a hutch, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there were little kids everywhere. So, you know, you had an absolute plethora, more than pro probably just about anywhere in the world at the time, you had teammates, opponents that you could play with day in and day out. There were always kids that were ready to play. So you were playing games. And of course, you know, you didn't do drills. You didn't do rondos. You know, you know, you played goal to goal across the street, you know, and you beat people and scored or quickly passed to, you know, to each other and scored, you know, and defended like dogs. And it was a knockdown drag out. Less field length than width. How often do we see that? We don't even do this in our facilities. We've got more field length than, than width. You know, well, they had more width than field you know, depth. So they were shooting goal to goal on the short. Mm -hmm. so, so their skills had to be beat a player and shoot. You know, you know, so you're shooting everywhere. Yeah, you're shooting all the time. You know, but, you, know you get all these shooting opportunities and, you know, and, and you know, just incredible uh, opportunity to shoot all the time. Flat surfaces. Ashington's built on a Vesuvial plain. There's, there's miles and miles and miles of flat surface. So there's not a hill in Ashington. You know, I didn't once get out of breath in Ashington, you know, because, you know, even at my ripe old age, because there's no hills and I could amble around to my heart's content. But there's value here, too, because I've seen the photos of, uh, of Jackie Charlton going back and, and, and it's cobblestone or, or bricked streets. And so it's not a perfect role and there's value to it. Not, not cobblestone. It is a perfect role in most areas. And I feel like in the photos I've seen. Uh, no, no, it's a perfect brick, role. Is it really? There's only one step. Up I mean, because there's value. There's value in not a perfect role from a I developmental was, I perspective. I was going to say that it's 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 good 
a lot of times to have that unpre being unpredictable, the bounce of the balls to improve your first touch and to dribble. It makes it harder. The Taoichi Academy, I think, is the you told me about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. And, yep. and they had one area that was imperfect. They had just a little step up between the street and what was the pavement. Yeah, so there's two, that. literally only two feet on the on the side of these roads, you know, that is, uh, you know, is quote unquote pavement sidewalk, it as you say. In goalkeeper's America. box. You know, and, and, you know, yeah, if you're going to be a goalkeeper, that was the two feet you defended. Yeah. You know, and, and so if you shot an absolute worm burner, it would pop up as it hit that little step up part. You know, it was only an inch high. Okay. And the interesting thing, though, is that, the, you know, this is how my crazy mind works, is that they only needed a tiny little step up on the, on the pavement, which was then um, gradually angled upwards towards the wall, but not enough for anybody to notice, you know, so that the rain would run down the wall, you know, run down this little piece of pavement, and then the drains... We're on the on the street side of that little piece of pavement, but Ashington doesn't get much rain, and this is the interesting thing about it: it doesn't have downpours like in Liverpool and Manchester, or especially in in South Wales. You know, and the reason that there's downpours in South Wales, Liverpool, and Manchester is that on the west side of the country, and less in Liverpool and Manchester than in South Wales. I went to school in South Wales. It rained every day in the first semester. <laughs> every single day there was rain. A lot of it was fairly heavy, you know. And so, you know, that's just the nature because water will drop from the clouds when the clouds rise to, to get over mountains. And so there's mountains in Wales. And then there's the Pennine Mountains in the center of England, along the spine of England. Ashington's hidden. Newcastle is hidden behind the Pennine Mountains. And, of course, a ton of rain dropped as the, as the weather system southwest to northeast across the Welsh mountains by the time the clouds get to Ashington what I'm saying is they've dumped most of their rain so when I was walking around there you know it was two rainy days but I never needed to use an umbrella you know and you know and I, I didn't really feel like I got wet because I'd get damp and then the rain would stop and then I'd get a damp again when it started again and it would stop and so I got at worst damp I didn't get soaked you know, and so that's the nature of the beast in the streets of Ashington. You know, and I'm making a big deal of this, but rain stops play. Sure. You know, mums call their kids in if they're getting soaked, and kids don't want to play in the rain if they're getting Not soaked. Not in Brazil. <laughs> Not in Brazil. They play in the rain. You know, and, and so there's no lightning delay or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. We've heard this crap about Brazil before, haven't we? Brazil trumps everything, you know, and. And, you know, it's, it's just not true. Brazil just got lucky for all these decades. Um, but but, but let's, let's get back to the, you know, the, the one by one. Um, the, the flat surfaces, you know, it's a Vesuvial plane, built-in goals. They had the coal holes. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so, it's great. you know, they didn't even have to put down shirts. I mean, how lucky did they get? You know, they, they just shot to the coal holes. Yeah. The coal holes denoted the goals, you know, and so, you know, they got lucky in the fact that they were equidistant. And I, I walked these streets and there's lots of these little coal holes that are boarded up but you can still see where they were on the brick mm -hmm. and you know the bricks have been put in and but there's still wooden coal holes some of them that are wrecked and i've got photographs of the coal holes 
schools, you know, but they are exactly opposite each other because they built every street exactly opposite each other. You know, is you know, Beatrice Street looks like Hawthorne Street. You know, you know, it just it's amazing how these streets, you know, um, are you know, Porsche Street. You know, they're all exactly the same. You know, so it's weird actually. It's just I've never seen this in any other community. You know, and and so uh, tough opponents. These are mining kids. Their families, you know, you know, you, you get, you know, you, you get a punch in the teeth, punch them back. You know, you, you don't go complaining or filing p- police reports when there's a fist fight in the street. You know, you just, you know, get, you know, fist fight, get bloody, you know, go in and wash up and go out and play soccer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the mentality. These, these families were really ridiculously tough. Clean streets, you know, the streets even to this day are pretty darn clean. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a bit of dog poo around, but, you know, aside from that, the streets are pretty clean. So you don't get muddy, you know, you, you know, and moms hate when kids get muddy, you know, because they have to, you know, spend 10 times as much time getting mud out, you know, and it gets in the rest of the wash. So the muddy stuff has to be done in different washes. You know, these kids never got muddy. You know, there wasn't any mud in their environment. It was all concrete. You know, it was concrete jungle, you know. So um, deep soccer culture. You know, th- you know, this is something that's incredibly important. It's massive in Brazil. You know, in Ashington, there's a deep soccer culture, a love for the game. You know, even before, you know, the generations that included, you know, Jackie Milburn and then later Bobby and Jack Charlton, those two golden generations, there was a deep soccer culture that pervaded, you know, the Charlton-Milburn families, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a huge influencer. It's no coincidence that those families produced the majority of, of uh, more than any other family of great players. Um, lack of alternatives and distractions. You know, no social media, no phone, you know, you know, no cars, you know, no places to go hang out in apart from maybe a boxing hall or two. And who wants to get their brains beaten out, be, you know, beaten in? You know, it's, you know, they wanted to play soccer. They didn't want to get punched in the teeth. You know, so distractions were few and far between. Perfect climate, climate with low and gentle rainfall, Reasonable year-round temperatures. It, it never gets to freezing in Ashington, funny enough. Mm-hmm. Even though it's deep in the northeast, you know, you know, and it can get pretty cool at times, you know, there's not a lot of wind because it's hidden behind the Pennines. And so, you know, you've got all of these advantages. Then you've got, you know, when you were kids in Ashington, no girls. Why no girls? Because they're on the front of the house. They were on the front of the house. Mums and girls went to, you know, the lovely little areas that the designers of Ashington had carved out with just a path. No motorized vehicles where the girls could play hopscotch and mums could visit, you know. And there weren't even garden fences in those days. You had a little lawn and everybody visited, you know, over, you know, on the lawns, you know. And these days, you know, human nature is to, you know, to... Uh, wall off, you know, homes, you know, and Ashington was a, was a back door and a front door society. Nobody locked their doors. People escaping the police used to run through houses to escape the police that were chasing them, you know, and the population, you know, used to let them run through houses to escape, but wouldn't let the police through, you know, because they wanted the, you know, the working class people to escape. You know, there was like a, a you know, a den of thieves together mentality, you know, in, in Ashington. So, so there was no girls, no interfering mothers, you know, in the back lanes with the little boys, you know, and the dads that used to come out and play as well, you know. And, and then the, bo- the boys didn't want to go back in the house because what happened when you went back in the house? You got a job. Mm-hmm. You know, your nagging mom would say, okay, do the washing up, clean the stoop, 
you know, make the bed, you know, whatever it was, you got jobs if you went back in the house. So you got out of the house as quickly as possible. And the only thing happening in the back lane of any note was soccer, you know, and mums had jobs for idle kids. You know, and of course, most older kids had siblings that needed attention. You know, these families had, you know, four, six, eight kids. You know, so there was always a baby in the house that needed attention. Usually the girls got that job. But sometimes if you were the only lad around, you got that job of amusing the kids. Tiny crowded houses had three generations often in residence. They didn't just have mom, dad and the kids. They also had grandparents usually living with them. You know, so, you know, you, you couldn't swing a cat in these small houses. Other factors were absence of distractions, no TV, cell phones, internet, social media. Female and relatives and siblings congregated on the other side of the houses where the garden and walking paths were located. Playing on the paved streets didn't make your trousers and shoes muddy. I think we already covered those. You know, but Andy, we've got to. It, we're creeping up on 110. Um, so Can't we run this for two hours instead of the normal one hour? <laughs> Come on, I'm well, on a roll. I've got, well, I've got a meeting in... 12 minutes but I've got uh, nothing to do for the rest of the day <laughs> <laughs> living that living that 60s plus life um, I, I, I will say that that it, you know we've talked about Ashington and we'll continue to talk about Ashington because the story is just fantastic and, and, and paints such a perfect picture for really the, the, the message that we oftentimes want to prioritize to send um, but Andy having now you having now traveled there I mean, it's truly special, right? Like, and I cannot wait for a trip to England that lends me the opportunity to hop on a train and take it to Ashington and do exactly what you did. Just walk around and talk to people and, 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 and seek to understand and tell the story because the few times on Twitter exchanges in which I've had this story or I've shared this story, the people in Ashington have been like, man, I never thought of it. And, and like that just sounds like a fun, especially with an American accent, to, to, to educate them on the greatness of their community many decades ago um, would be a really fun thing. Um, so I, it's special for sure. Before we end. <laughs> call those people you got to meet with and tell them they're going to be delayed. <laughs> he just um, ignored all your conclusion and closing <laughs> statements. No, I saw him getting the paper ready. <laughs> How could you not? <laughs> um, the, so listen to this. The street football soccer period went hand in hand with the sophistication and metamorphosis of soccer as the world's most popular team sport. And it was the street environment that initially played the key role in the provision of players and preparation of those players for the professional game. This is an undeniable fact. But the coaching fraternity has a tough time acknowledging that their impact on the development of the greatest players in world history has, at best, been significantly less than they would like others to believe, and at worst, minimal. Soccer coaches and the game's administrators at all levels have the toughest time giving credit to other key factors in player development, such as physical environment, family culture, historical community perception, and the powerful impact of developing a leader's psyche. It has never been fully appreciated or acknowledged by the wider coaching fraternity that the most gifted players in world history have predominantly come from either street football or artificially designed street soccer circumstances. 
The reality is that most coaches tend to take more credit for the development and preparation of their youth players than they probably should. That street soccer and its fundamental components are what produced most of the greatest players in world history has never really been fully understood or appreciated by the coaching fraternity that followed it or make their, made their careers out of it. This narcissistic coaching brotherhood often wants players, parents and fans to believe that they play a much bigger and more important part in youth player development than they actually do. However, the reality is that most coaches play a smaller and less potent part in this process than they would have us believe. It has been said that difficulty develops diamonds, and in many respects it does. The street soccer games of the past and those played currently in third world countries are the complicated and painful platforms and springboards that poor kids use to leverage, expand and showcase their genetic potential. Street football may be unable to teach some components of full game perception, but I believe it is still the gold standard of creative skill and tactical development in the extremely tight spaces available inside the penalty area under the pressure of competition. Since the disappearance of street soccer, coaches the world over have struggled mightily to find or create a replacement for it. In the Legends Soccer Club, we have studied the street soccer phenomenon and with over 33 years of constant analysis and experimentation have produced what we believe is the best coaching system, culture, environment and psychology to resurrect the beautiful game. Well said, well written. Um, Philippe, Andy, another great episode. Thanks, guys. See you. Much appreciated. Thanks.